Today I'm going to share my testimony and my story. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to share my, my story with you, my testimony of how I came to Jesus, or in other words, how Jesus came to me. It says this in Ephesians 2, which is kind of Paul summarizing all our stories, which here we use the outline, I was but God I am, to kind of give our testimonies a place. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. I say all. All. All once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God. Everybody say, but God. Being rich in mercy. Because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There is power in your story. I think many times we lose sight of that, that, that many times we want to dress ourselves up, clean ourselves up, put our best face forward, put our best image forward, so people think the best of us. But there's power in your story of who you were before you encountered Jesus and who you are now. And stories are powerful. Jesus used parables. He used stories to communicate. And now neuroscientists have discovered that when one person is telling a story and another person is listening to the story, their brain, wa brain waves actually come in sync together. And so as Jesus is telling these, telling these parables, he wasn't just telling stories. He was connecting mind to mind and heart to heart with the people he was trying to reach. And so when you tell your story, you're connecting at a level in which you're saying, me too, I've been through this. I was once alienated. I was once far away from God. I was once ashamed. I was once guilty. I was once caught up in the flesh. I was once, but God, rich in mercy. And so today, I just want you to see the power of God in, in three ways. I want you to see the power of your story. That your, your story, regardless how good or how bad it is, has power in it. Two, I want you to see the power of a seed. That the kingdom of heaven is built on sowing and reaping. Seeds and flourishing and fruitfulness. And there's power in seeds. But thirdly, there's power in prayer. And when those three things come together, I believe miracles happen. Miracles transpire. You see the lost get saved. You see the, the sick get healed. You see all those things happen. But it comes from the power of God, not from the power of man. And so I just want to share... My story, and my story is, some of y'all probably have similar stories. Some are probably like, man, who is this guy and how did he get this job? Is what you're going to think at the end of this. And so I, I grew up in a family, there was, there was no church involvement at all. There wasn't an auntie or an uncle or a grandparent that was a person of faith. There was no praying people. It was, it was literally, my dad would tell me our religion was sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And so it was the 80s for me. For some of y'all that's like really old, some of y'all are like, he's still a baby. It was the 80s, and the 80s were the best of times and the worst of times. If you throw up that picture of the 80s, that is the 80s through and through. 
family pictures in front of the Marlboro pack is kind of how it goes. So our family, everyone smoked. My memories are full of smoky haze in living rooms and ashtrays full of cigarettes. My sleeping bag when we go to sleepovers was a Marlboro red sleeping bag. My new clothes for school were Marlboro Man t-shirts. Like, we lived it up. Why? Because if you're going to spend all that money on cigarettes, you might as well get the miles out of it. And that's how we lived. So my house was one that was full of anything you could imagine. My parents would go to parties and leave us in a back room while they would drink and do drugs, weed. My, since then, my dad's told me pretty much any drug you can imagine, they were doing while we were in the house, while we were locked up in a, in a, in a bedroom. So much so that when the dogs would, would come out, they'd pour beer for the dogs and let the dogs have a little bit of fun too. My Legos would be stored in Crown Royal bags, and when I'd go see my dad's dresser, there was his wallet that was about that thick, and there was an ashtray full of cigarette butts and roaches, and not the roaches that Cook's Pest Control can take care of, the roaches that only, you know, a drug test can take care of. And weed everywhere. I remember being young and my dad would come home from work and I looked up to my dad. My dad was a really good dad. And I looked up to my dad and I'd just wait for him to come home from work and he'd come home and he would, wouldn't say hi. He would just go directly to the side of the yard. I remember asking my mom, I'm like, where, where, where's dad going? She's like, he's checking on the plants. And I was like, man, we're not farmers. And so years later, I'm like, oh, he was checking on his plants. And so, like, that was the environment we grew up in. Alcohol flowed freely. It was always every memory I have of my mom was, my mom struggled with alcoholism. Uh, even to this day, she struggled. Most of my memories, memories of her are, have the tint of the scent of alcohol upon them. I remember when I was 12 years old, there was a bottle of Everclear on top of her refrigerator. And a buddy came over and he's like, man, let's drink some of that. And I was like, dude, that will kill you. He says, no, he swigs this Everclear. If you don't know Everclear, it is pure grain alcohol, like moonshine. He takes this huge swig and he falls down the ground, grabbing his chest. And he's like, I think I'm dying. I said, I'm not telling my parents. You drank their alcohol. You're going to die right there, Jared. Like we're rolling up a post-it note full of leaf clippings and grass clippings from our yard to try to smoke like my parents smoked weed. I remember experiencing everything they experienced, seeing the things they experienced, seeing the party life they experienced, seeing things that were sexual in nature before I'd hit puberty because of some of the party stuff that was going on. And so I'd seen this environment. This was the environment that was normal to me. So much so I'd go to a friend's house and I'd use words and they'd tell me, you can't say that word, even though that word was used around our dinner table like it was a normal word, only to find out later it's a cuss word. Like things like that would happen. But in that environment of drugs and and alcoholism and, and sexual perversion, all these things going on. My mom had had some traumatic experiences from her childhood. And so with that internal trauma, that internal pain, she kind of transferred that to me. And so if you don't know what that means, any trauma or any pain that is not transformed is transferred to somebody else. Pain does not remain stagnant. It is, it is transformed into something positive or it's transferred into something negative. And so my mom had all this stuff. And so I was kind of the, the, the point of, of pouring out that transfer of those generational curses where I was looked at as the reason her life was the way her life was. I was looked at as the cause for her being in a marriage with my dad who she did not like. As they both cheated on each other numerous times, I was the cause she was stuck in this life that she did not want. 
And so she would point everything at me, our brother, my sister. I almost feel like I was their protection from her because she just poured it all out on me. And it would just tear me down. I remember being six years old, and she would tear me down in every form and fashion she possibly could from you're not good enough. Why can't you be like this kid? I wish this kid was my son and not you. And anything you could think of was said. And remember, I had this picture of my grandfather, and I thought, since he didn't live in the house, maybe he's the only person that actually loves me. I remember I'd take that picture, and I'd just be broken down, crying these tears. My bedroom mom come in, she's like, oh, you're just going to cry, aren't you? You're just going to cry. And she would begin to berate me. And, and she would sing this song, and some of you have heard this song before. It's this song that says, nobody likes me, everybody hates me, guess I'll go eat some worms. And she would sing that song to me in, when I was in the pit because of her abuse. Now that I've grown older, I just realized it was her abuse and her pain that she didn't know how to process or handle. She was trying to get rid of it, and I was the closest one to her. And normally we hurt the people we love the most. And it went on for years and years and years, even later, and after I was saved, uh, it was probably about 10, 12 years ago, we're sitting at the dinner table, me, Toy, and the kids were all small. She'd fix spaghetti, and, and the kids love spaghetti, and we sit down, and my phone rings as soon as I sit down. And so I try to honor my mom and dad. If they call me, I'm going to answer it no matter what's going on. And she calls, and I pick up the phone, I, I go back to the, the hallway, and I'm talking to my mom, and I'm like, hey, what's going on? She's just boo-hoo crying. <laughs> and so my mom could be a little dramatic, so I was like, hey, like, what's up? She's like, I just watched this movie, Precious. And I was like, okay. And so if you haven't seen the movie Precious, don't. It's a really bad movie. And in the movie, this lady gets pregnant. She basically leaves her child on a doorstep somewhere else. She says, I just need to tell you something. I'm like, Mom, I'm trying to eat. Like, just, just tell me. So she goes to tell me, she's like, when I was pregnant with you, my mom, which would be my grandmother, my mom and her neighbor worked out a deal for me to sell you to my neighbor for $500. I was like, really? I was like, you wait till I'm 33 years old to tell me this. And she's like, but I'm sorry, I didn't do it. And I'm like, well, obviously I know that. And she says, and I'm just trying to say, listen, Mom, I forgive you. It's not a big deal. It's okay. Like, I love you. All those things. And kind of hang on the phone, go back to the dinner table. It's like me and Toy and the kids. She's like, what'd your mom want? I was like, you're not going to believe this one. <laughs> Afterwards, I, 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 after the kids were gone, obviously, I, I told Toy, I said, here's what she said. She's like, how's that make you feel? And I said, I, I'm so used to it. I, I don't know. I was like, part of me is like, wow, I'm worth an Xbox One, is what I was thinking. And the other side is like, I'll give her $500 now just to leave me alone. Like, it, it was one of those things. And so my whole life has been caught up in that drama and in this verbal and emotional manipulation and abuse and the alcoholism. And even when mom did tell me she loved me, I just smell alcohol on her breath. So you don't know if it's true or this alcohol talking. And so that's the environment in the, in the home atmosphere I was in, but there was a moment when I was about six, almost seven years old, and somehow we ended up at this basketball event in town. It was a, a Baptist church in town had this little basketball event. My, my dad still played some basketball, and I, I tried to play a little bit of basketball then. And at this event, there was a man named Bob Schindler. You can throw Bob's picture up there. Bob Schindler was this, this guy who was a missionary that started basing out of this little Baptist church. And at this basketball event, he just starts talking to people that are in the room. And, and this man here who's highly educated, professional, 
traveled the world sharing the gospel, traveled the world meeting people. My dad had never really left the state of Tennessee. My dad wasn't educated. My dad was on the other side of the tracks. My dad was a guy. These two men would never connect outside the church. This man walks across the room and sits down with my dad and begins to share the gospel with him and communicate to him what it means to follow Jesus. And on that night, my dad said yes to Jesus. And then they brought me over, and I said yes to Jesus. And the following week, we were both baptized together, me and my dad. My mom was not. And so there was a seed that was planted in our hearts and our spirits of the gospel. But if you don't know, the gospel is a seed. It doesn't produce fruit initially. It has to be nurtured and discipled and watered and fertilized and pruned in order to produce the fruit of righteousness. And so we never went back to church after that. Like we never were in, 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 in any type of holy environment after that. Yes, the neighbors are the type of neighbors that come pick me and my siblings up and drag us to VBS because they felt sorry for us in the environment we were in. Yes, there was friends that tried to support me when I was at their house and give me a loving environment. But the normal environment was not one in which seeds of faith could grow in. And that's why discipleship is so important and the local church is so important. That they are environments that the seeds of God, the seeds of the gospel, the seeds of the destiny, don't get plucked away by the enemy. Don't get plucked away by the worries of the world. Don't get plucked away from all these things. That they, they grow in an environment. Psalms 92 says the house of God is an environment where the people of God flourish. But we never got in that environment. I stayed in the environment where my mom who continue to beat me down. And, you, and parents, you may not know this, but a mom and dad's voice should be the voice of destiny and prophecy in their children's life. It should be the voice of hope, the voice of positivity, the voice of love, the voice of life, the voice of faith, all in them. And so when you misuse that tool and you speak death and hopelessness and failure and not good enough and conditional love and all those things. When you use the tool, the power of the voice is the same. It just produces the opposite of what it's called to produce. And so here I am with this seed in me, but there's no water on it. There's no fertilizer on it. And so the seed sits dormant. And in my teenage years, I, friends and family would try to work on me, try to take me to church. I would never go. And, and finally, one day, this guy on my basketball team said, hey, man, you need to go to church. I was like, man, I'm not, I ain't going to church. Our phrase was, if you're scared, you go to church. I ain't scared. He said, no, you need to come to church. I was like, why? He said, because there's girls there. At the time I'm 13 years old, and I was like, there's only two things that matter to me, basketball and girls. He said, there's a basketball court to us, and I'm there. And I go there, this kid from the other side of the tracks, this kid who no one else wanted their kid around because of his language, because of his home environment, even later finding out there's people that wouldn't let me come to their house because when I came, my mom would come to pick me up and steal their drugs out of their pharmaceutical cabinet in the bathrooms. So these people didn't want me. And it's a proper, prim Baptist church. Kids that are upper middle class and middle class. And here I am coming from the trailer park. But I'm there for two things, basketball and for girls. I'm looking for girls. And he was right. There was girls, 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 girls. But again, I'm the guy from the other side of the tracks. But while I was there looking for girls, I found something much more important. I found an environment where unconditional love and acceptance actually existed. And I, I'd, never, I'd never encountered that before. I'd never seen that before. I'd never experienced. I didn't even know that was possible. 
So now I'm juxtaposing my home environment where everything's conditional, everything's death, everything's hopelessness, and this new environment where everything's life, everything's unconditional love, everything's hope-filled. And it's amazing because I'm caught up in it and I'm experiencing it. I can't explain it. I can't express it. I don't understand it. But all I do know is that all the other kids that are there don't understand it. They've become so familiar with an environment of unconditional love that it was now commonplace. And for me, it was life-changing. I remember being there, not even knowing all the things of Scripture. I didn't know the Bible. I didn't really have a Bible. I didn't know any of the stuff. I remember being laid down on my face on the carpet of this Baptist church, weeping over unconditional love and acceptance. While all these other kids are kind of watching me. Why? Because their homes have unconditional love and acceptance. But for me, for the first time, I got a glimpse of what it may be like to have a family, the family of God, who loves people regardless of where they come from, but it calls them up before it calls them out. I was so used to being called out, I could never be called up. And so here I was, and unconditional love is the environment or is the atmosphere where all the things of God grows. And so that seed that was planted was getting a chance to develop a root system because it was an environment of unconditional love. Everything God created flourishes in unconditional love. Your marriage flourishes in unconditional love. Your kids flourish in unconditional love. The church flourishes in unconditional love. But once there's conditions upon love, it stifles it and kills it. And so if you want to see the things in your life grow, you need to find a way to create an atmosphere of unconditional love. Not legalism, not expectation, I'll love you if, and I'll love you if you do this. No, unconditional love is the environment that God created for everything he sows to produce exactly what it's sent forth to produce. And here am I find it. And I find people, I find friends, I find people. There's a lady named Alicia Sharpton who our oldest daughter is actually named after who was the interim youth pastor of this Baptist church. And she became the mother I never had. And I think God strategically placed her there as a woman in ministry to be the mother figure that I was missing in my life. Because if it would have been a, a male figure, it wouldn't have done what it did for me. And here she is, she recognizes my brokenness. She rec and she lets me come to her house. Now get it, some kids' parents wouldn't let me come. But here she is, she lets me come to her house. And the first time I actually went to her house, I broke into her house because they were out of town. She let me hang out with her son. Like I got to eat at their dinner table. Like I got to be part of their family. And it was this mother-type figure who didn't speak death but speak, spoke life that saw something in me that was deeper than the externals, that saw something in me that was deeper than the pain or the brokenness or the trauma. And she saw something in me, and the greatest prophetic gifting is to see beyond the brokenness to the redemptive value inside people. That is the prophetic gifting, and she had that. And God will bring people across your path. He'll bring people into your life that see things in you that you don't even see yourself. That the mirror can't reveal to you, that the world can't reveal to you, but they can see it inside of you and they'll begin to speak it. When the world is speaking against it, they'll begin to speak it and calling it forth. 
I remember I was walking through her living room one day. I'll never forget this day as long as I live. I was walking through her living room. She was sitting in the corner. I'm going upstairs to her son's room. He says, hey, hey, Bobby. Hey, has God called you to ministry yet? And I was like, what? And so she didn't know I'd been having, I'd always thought I'd be a basketball coach, love basketball, spent my life playing basketball, thought I'd be a basketball, but like right before she said that, I've been thinking like, you know, like preaching and pastoring is kind of like a basketball coach, but for God's team instead of a basketball team. Like I didn't know how to explain it. And she says, has God called you to ministry yet? And I was like, what's that mean? She says, it just means God wants to use you to, to speak to his people and lead his people. And I said, who told you that? She said, God did. And I said, well, help me understand. I was just amazed that what was inside of me, somebody else saw it and they spoke it and said, God told them what was going on inside of me. And I thought, what does that even look like? I just figured, like the church we're at, the pastor's son was a youth pastor before. His other brother was another pastor on staff. His dad was a pastor, their grandfather's pastor. I thought ministry was just a family business. I mean, my dad's an electrician. My grandfather's an electrician. I'll probably be an electrician. My brother's actually an electrician. I just figured it was a family business. I didn't know there was a calling. I thought it was just you'd learn the business. He said, no, it's not a business. She said, it's a calling. And God calls people for such a time as this. She began to speak to me. And I, I remember going through the motion. And as soon as I voiced that, I remember I'd carry my Bible to school with me. And my buddies who I used to run the streets with would make fun of me for having my Bible on the desk. But the Bible is where I found the, unaccept, uh, the unconditional acceptance of God. I remember it's carried with me as almost a protection mechanism. And they make fun of me and talk all this trash. And like, oh, you just scared you're going to go to jail. That's the only reason you're going to church. So I'm like, no, I'm scared I'm going to go to hell. That's why I'm going to church. And so we, we go back and forth. And so finally she says, you need to tell the youth group that you're called to ministry. So I remember I stood up one day and I told her, hey, I feel like I'm, I'm called to preach. I'm called to ministry. And it's like the moment I said that, that seed that was inside of me, I tried to break forth, but all of a sudden, all this dirt got piled back on. All right, so if the gospel is a seed, it's trying to break forth, it's trying to get roots, it's trying to push through the surface of, of hard soil in my life. But some people can put dirt on top of it, some people can, can plow up the ground. And all of a sudden, what happened with this church where I found unacceptable or un unconditional acceptance of love at, now there are stipulations on things. And so this same lady who had been the interim youth pastor for two years, all of a sudden the, the lead pastor, senior pastor comes. He says, hey, like, we have to make a change. He says, women aren't supposed to be in ministry. He says, so we're going to move Alicia out and bring a guy in that we've already hired and walks this line. And so in my 16-year-old mind, I said this. I said, so women aren't allowed to be in ministry, yet you've used a woman for two years for your own benefit. Women aren't supposed to be in ministry, yet that's the voice God used to bring me to this place. And for the first time in my young life, I'd experienced church hurt like probably many people in this room had experienced. And I didn't have the, the root system to handle that. And it was almost like just piled dirt. I'd seen religion now instead of just unconditional love and acceptance. I'd seen religion and politics now instead of just God's bride being who she's supposed to be. At that moment, I, I tried to process it. I couldn't understand it. And the things that, that I'd suppressed when I started to go to church now came in me tenfold. The alcohol, the drugs, the violence, 
the run in the streets. I got arrested the first time when I was 14 years old. After I was called to ministry and I made the announcement and then I made this kind of, kind of straying away. At 17, I got arrested for a drive-by shooting. I was not the shooter, I was in the car. When a fight broke out, as we're leaving the fight, my buddy on the driver's side window shoots three shots at this house. I get arrested even though I'd been called to ministry and I was in church, spend the night in jail, go through the court system. I'm doing community service at the church. And it was like dirt after dirt after dirt after dirt was piled back on. I graduate high school, I think, I, I can't just keep doing this. I was messing with drugs too much. I was going out all night. I was partying. I was doing all of this stupid stuff. And my grandfather's on his deathbed. My grandfather's really the only person that was in, not only, but he was a main figure in my life. He was not doing well health-wise. And I thought to myself, I cannot let my grandfather see my name in the paper or my face in the news. And I just had this moment, and I said, I have to get away. I remember he was in the Air Force. I was like, you know, I'll just go to the Air Force. And I went to the recruiter's office. The Air Force guy wasn't there because the Air Force guys only work like two days a week. And so the Army recruiter was there. And so the Army recruiter says, hey, what, what do you need? I said, man, I just need to get away, bro. Like, I just need to get away. He goes through all these things. Hey, you can do this. And like, Armor recruiters are like, you have Satan and then recruiters. They're kind of the same thing. <laughs> like, they both promise you the world, but then they just steal your soul. And, and, and he's like, man, you can do this and do this. I said, dude, I don't care what I do. I just need to get away as soon as possible. And he says this. He says, well, can you pass a drug test? I said, today? I was like, <laughs> he said, well, in like three or four days, it's like, uh, Maybe. He said, well, just put yes. I said, okay. okay. So I put yes. I go home. My, my stepsister, older stepsister, just married an army guy. And he, call, he found out, went to the recruiter. I said, what did he, what he tell you? I said, he told me this, this, this. He said, he's lying to you. He's like, don't you go back and sign up. I said, okay. Next day, I go back to the recruiter's office. I'm walking past the army guys, and there are these windows, glass windows. This army office, Air Force office, Air Force office, Navy office, all next to each other. So I'm trying to walk past the army recruiter's office where Satan dwelt and go into the Air Force office. So I'm trying to go past where the army guy, hey, he said, where are you going? I said, I'm, I'm going to the Air Force. He said, no, no, you said you were going to sign up for the army. I said, no, you lied to me. And now me and army guy are face-to-face -face screaming, cussing at each other. We finish, I go into the Air Force recruiter's office, and I said, hey, I'd like to join the Air Force. He says, what was that? I said, he lied to me. I don't want him lying to me. I just need to get away. How can you get away? He says, can you pass a drug test? I said, today? He said, in three days. I said, yes. And so I signed up for the Air Force. I said, I just want to get away as quickly as possible. So put me on delayed enlistment, and they said, if we have a date open up, we'll get you out of there. So I was supposed to leave in like two months. Like four weeks later, they called me on a Monday, said, can you leave in the morning? I said, I'm there. And I go, I'm in Intel, and I, and I think that everything that, that I can get away from is going to be far away from me. And so many of us think of the military as like 24-7, four years of boot camp. But you literally have eight weeks of boot camp and then you get into the real world, except now you're an 18, 19-year-old kid with an allowance to spend on the same things that you were doing before. And so as I'm trying to run away from this life, the life follows me. Six months into the Air Force, I'm arrested again for a fight on base with an Army guy. And so by the time I'm 18, I've been arrested five times. And I thought I was getting away from it. And what I realized is now the base I'm on, they made legal drinking age 18 on base because we're so close to Mexico. They didn't want us going to Mexico, getting locked away in a Mexican prison, which I'm very grateful. I'm not in a Mexican prison still to this day. 
But when you were struggling with alcoholism since you were a young teenager, and now they said you can go buy alcohol yourself at 18, everyone was a drunk. I'm completely drunk. I'm completely sloshed. I'd, I'd, I'd found things that I didn't know existed. I'd found people I didn't know existed. My sexual promiscuity escalated through the roof because I'd learned that through sexual promiscuity, I'd found the love of a woman that felt unconditional for a moment. And my insecurities, my mommy issues were resolved in those moments. My emotional pain, my emotional struggles, my soul hurts were numbed by the alcohol. And my insecurities were numbed by sexual promiscuity. And here I am thinking I can run, run, run away from my life. And what I realized is you can not run fast enough or far enough to escape yourself. Because whenever you get there, guess who shows up with you? Yourself, your insecurities, your shame, your pain, and your trauma. And I had left everything behind only to find out the only thing I couldn't leave behind was Bobby. My life was falling apart. I met Toya was in the Air Force. She's an amazing gift of God in my life. And I about destroyed that time after time after time again. And I'm living this life. One day I looked in the mirror and I literally looked at myself in the mirror and I said, I have become just like my mom. And when there's roots of bitterness and unforgiveness, the people that you're so busy trying not to be like, you actually become just like them. And I looked at myself and I'm broken with alcohol and drug abuse and sexual promiscuity and brokenness and perversion and all these things like the most people can't even understand. And it wasn't like I was just trying to have a good time. I was just trying to suppress the inner me. So much so that even after I was saved, I'm in ministry. We got all four of our kids. Everything's going well. The church we're at is flourishing there in North Nashville and White House where Dylan's now at. The kids are great. Toy is great. Marriage is great. Like just everything's finally worked out. And I come home one day from work and I check the mailbox and I'm going through the mail and there's just one letter. And you ever, you ever seen a crime show where they're like the, the serial killer has a letter and he like cuts and pastes the letters onto the letter? It was one of those type of letters. So I'm thinking, I'm about to get killed by somebody. And I'm going through this letter and it's this letter from this girl who, I, she didn't even say who she was. And just says, hey, I met you while you are in the Air Force. My dad told me to stay away from guys like you. Yeah, I was running around with you, and I found your name when you bought your house. I do mortgage insurance, and I found your name. I've been looking for you for years. I found your name, and I wanted to let you know that I'm HIV positive because of you. And I'm, like, devastated. Like, here I am. I'm in ministry. I got a wife. I've got four beautiful kids. And my past just comes knocking on my door. Remember, I, I'm, I'm not the wisest man in the world, but I know I probably don't need to tell Toya until I at least know what's going on. So I hide the letter. I try to call. I go to the, the, the health, health board or whatever it is, the health building. I said, hey, I just need an HIV test. Because I didn't want to go in my town where people knew me, so I go to the town over. They said, we don't do that here. I said, what I need is, they said, you need to call your doctor. I said, I'm not calling my doctor. So I find another doctor. And I go in and I, I say, I need an HIV test. One of the most embarrassing things I've ever done in my life. 
And I go in and they take the blood. They said it'll take 24 hours to get the results back. Do you know how long 24 hours is? In the meantime, Toya finds a letter. So she's distraught and she's broke because now she's thinking, I've done this to her as well and to our kids. So all these things are spinning out of control only to find out the test results were actually negative. And part of me was relieved, but the other part of me was broken because here I am. I, I've done all these things, yet I kind of get off dead free. And here's this girl who did the same things I did, but she has a death sentence on her life. And there was this guilt and shame that came back up that I've had to suppress ever since of, of the lives I've wrecked due to my selfishness and self-centeredness. And so in the middle of all this, Toy and I are living in Ohio. We're at a point where I think our relationship is great. She's ready to leave me because I'm just a drunk. And she didn't want her kids being raised in an environment like I was raised in. I went to work one night. And I'm working in this factory, and there's this old guy looks like George Jefferson I worked with. And he's like, boy, there's got to be a heaven because this place is hell. Like, he's just George Jefferson. And I walk in. And he's talking, and I, as soon as I clock in, I get on my little machine there in Ohio, and all of a sudden, I just start hearing the word messianic prophecy, messianic prophecy, messianic prophecy. I'd never heard that word before. Now, I'm, I'm a complete atheist. I, I'd studied Islam, Buddhism, Baha. I, I studied Judaism. I studied all these religions trying to find what I was looking for and realize there was no God. I, I was satisfied and toy to, I was complacent with that. Now, my, my morals lived up to that, but I was fine. I'm like, okay, there is no God. I don't have to live up to that standard because there is no afterlife. There is no eternity. I'm fine with that. And I walk in this factory, and all of a sudden, I start hearing this term messianic prophecy. It wasn't audible, but it was loud. And in the same light, I see a vision of me preaching at the only church I'd ever walked into, which is the church where I found unconditional love and acceptance. And I was like, dude, I have not done drugs in a while. But this is crazy. And I tried to push the vision away. I tried to push the words away. But for eight hours, the vision of me preaching, I'm like, I don't even believe in God. A vision of me preaching and messy on a prophecy, messy on a prophecy. Now I've read books. I've read apologetics books. I've read different religions. I'd never heard the term messy on a prophecy. And so I drive home at 11.30, 12 at night, and I go to the little basement office her parents had, and I get on the computer on 56K dial-up modem. <laughs> Only to Google the words messianic prophecy. I didn't even know if there were real words. Messianic prophecy. And after you know, 36 minutes of one web page downloading, I begin to see things I'd never seen before. I see that there was over 300 prophecies that were about the Messiah, where he would live, how he'd live, how he'd interact, how he would teach, how he would die, how he'd resurrect. I see 300 plus prophecies, and I see the prophecy and how Jesus fulfilled them over and over and over again. And so here's just a few. Psalm 41, 9 says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. In Mark 14, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. After he did what? Ate the bread with Jesus. 
Zechariah 11. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw it, threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Matthew 26, how much did Judas get for betraying Jesus? What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to me 30 pieces of silver. And after Judas hung himself in Matthew 27, after he hung himself, they actually took the, the money, the 30 piece of silver, and bought what? A potter's field. And I saw that over and over and over and over and over again. 300 times I see where Jesus is prophesied and how Jesus is filled. And I said, I'm not the smartest man, but if you told me the weather perfectly 300 days in a row, at one point I might think you're on to something. And I, I needed empirical evidence. I was an atheist. I debated Christians. I persecuted Christians. I hated Christians. I'd heard all this stuff. And I, I needed evidence. Because I needed evidence to offset my hurt and my pain. And I never found it until I saw these 300. And Dr. Stoner, this, this statistician in Texas, said, I'm going to do the probability of this. And he just took just eight, just eight of the Messianic prophecies. He said, what's the probability? What's the ratio? What's the chances of one man fulfilling just eight of these prophecies? They ran the numbers and they figured out it was one to the 10 to the 17th power, which is a 10 followed by 17 zeros. To illustrate, he said, that'd be the equivalent. Now it's a higher number. But that'd be the equivalent of covering the state of Texas in silver dollars two feet deep from border to border to border to border to border. Two feet deep, painting one red, stirring up the, all the silver dollars and telling a blind man to pick out one silver dollar. The chances of that person picking the one silver dollar is the chances Jesus is Messiah. Since then, they've done it 48 prophecies is one to the 157th power. Yet Jesus filled 300 plus and I sat there in front of that computer with a 56K dial-up modem as my worship music. And I laid there on the ground, on carpet again, smelling the, the mildew of the carpet in that basement. And Jesus revealed himself to me. He didn't give me all the answers that I looked for of wiser suffering, wiser death, wiser this, wiser that. He didn't answer all those questions. He just showed up. I encountered him. And he showed me that even though I had persecuted him, even though I blasphemed him, even though I would talked bad about him, even though I turned my back on him, even though I'd had a, a moment of encounter with him but I ran the opposite direction, even all those things, he was still there with me the entire time, chasing me down, wanting me back. And that unconditional Love and acceptance I'd been looking for my entire life was not found in my relationship with Toya, not found in friends, not found in family. It was only found in Jesus. And he showed it to me. I was blown away when the sun came up. I go upstairs to, Toya's, to where Toya was sleeping. And I said, baby, you got to wake up. I said, you have to wake up. She said, what? I said, I've been wrong about Jesus. Now, I've not said I've been wrong ever since this date, so don't take it too far. I said, I've been wrong about Jesus. She says, what do you mean? I said, and again, I go from atheist when I went to work to now I'm a follower of Jesus. I said, I've been wrong. Like, and I went through the whole story. I was like, messing on prophecy and this vision of me preaching. Like, that didn't make sense. I was like, but I just, I've been wrong and Jesus is who he says he is. 
and Toy's just weeping. I remember the sunlight is coming through the blinds, and she's just weeping. And she says, last night, me and Alicia Sharp, and that same woman who was the, the youth minister at the time, who's my spiritual mom, were praying for me the entire night. So Bobby Gorley wasn't good enough to find my own revelation. The only reason I believe that God began to reveal himself to me was because the two most important women in my life decided they were going to pray me into the kingdom. See, I, I believe it was twofold. One, it was the seed that was planted by Bob Schindler at a very young age, which is why chapel kids is important, why getting your kids in the right environment is important. You don't get seeds of destiny from travel ball at sports and school. You get seeds of destiny in the house of God. The seed was planted, but the seed needs some things to grow. It needs the right environment. It needs water. And how you water the seeds of the gospel, how you water seeds of the spirit, how you water seeds of heaven is not from watering out of the host pipe. Prayer is how you water the things of God. And as they watered that seed in prayer, as they labored in, in that prayer time, as they labored over my life and over the seed that was in me, it was like water, water, water. And all of a sudden it just burst out of the soil and it says, finally it has seen the light. That's why it's so important. We, we, I love evangelism, but do you not realize the important thing is getting the seed in the ground and making sure that seed is watered. That is the two most important things. And so since that date, there has been no turning back. If Jesus is going to give me all of himself, I'm going to give all myself to him. And since that day, we moved to Nashville, like everything changed. Many of my questions have since been answered, but they weren't answered at that moment. I stepped out in faith and trusted that he was who he says he was. Since that day, he's done so much more than I could dream and imagine. And so I am not the old me. You would not like the old me. I mean, Toy didn't even like the old me. My kids wouldn't like the old me. But the new me is one without shame, brokenness, guilt, fear, worry, mommy issues, drug abuse, alcoholism, sexual promiscuity. And it's all because Jesus decided to move into my life supernaturally. Salvation is not a choice. It is an encounter. And how you choose to respond to that encounter determines every step after that. So if you would just bow your heads and close your eyes just for a quick moment. I'm going to do something a little different today. I believe there's three. I believe everyone in this room has a response. And there's three responses in the room. There's a group of people that maybe today that you realize God has been drawing you towards himself. He's been showing up in certain times and seasons of your life, but you've never decided to follow him. There's a difference between encountering God and following God. And you follow him by one, repenting, confessing, and following. Repenting of trying to lead your own way of your own sin, of your own brokenness, of your own trauma, your own issues, repenting and confessing that you need him more than he needs you. And following him through baptism and through just walking with him and talking with him and letting him pour his love into you, 
So that's one group of people. The second group of people are people. Maybe there's people in your life that the seed has been planted, but it hadn't been watered. And God is calling you to boldness in prayer. To pray for those around you that are lukewarm. To pray for those around you who seem completely lost. Even I preached for Dylan two weeks ago in White House. One of my best friend's mom was there. She says, she's just weeping. She's like, I remember on my front porch, you told me you didn't believe in God. And, and, da, 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 and I wept over you. As soon as you left my front porch, I called three of my girlfriends. And said, we got to pray for that boy. I was prayed into the kingdom. So the question is, who are you going to pray into the kingdom? Thirdly, maybe it's your time for your story to be shared. People can argue theology. People can argue church hurt. People can argue deconstruction. People can argue, you know, is there a God suffering? They can argue things, but they can't argue your story. Your story is the greatest apologetics anybody's ever seen or heard. Three responses. As we close, here's how we're going to close. When I get to the count of three, if you said, you know what, I, I confess Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I'm following him, I am with him, and I'm walking with him. When I get to zero, I just want you to stand up. I want you to confess him again. Sometimes we think confessions are one thing. No, if you can't confess Jesus here, you can't confess him out there. And as the world gets more and more oppressive towards Christians. I think we need to get a boldness in the house of God so we have a boldness outside of God. So when I get to zero, you said, I, I confess Jesus as Lord. I'm walking with him and I'm not ashamed. I just want you to stand to your feet. Three, two, one, zero. Second group. If you're not standing, that's okay. If you're not standing, it's okay. But if you are standing, I want you to just begin to pray in this room for those who aren't able to stand. I want you to begin to pray and lift up the names of people in your life that are far away from God, that need that seed watered in their life. As you begin to pray, if there's somebody around you, I just want you, you don't have to touch somewhere, just shoot your hand towards him and say, Father, I pray for an awakening. I pray for God. Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you for the power of a seed. And in this moment, I thank you for Bob Schindler. I thank you for his boldness to walk across the room and talk to my dad. For the first time, someone cared enough about my dad, cared enough about our family to share the truth with them. And Father, I thank you for that seed that has now produced fruit in me, my family, my kids. I thank you for that seed that's produced fruit in my dad's life, in my stepmom's life, my brother's life. Father, I thank you for that seed that's continually to produce fruit. I thank you for Bob Schindler. Father, I thank you for the seeds of the gospel that are in this room that have taken root in the lives of your people. And Father, I pray for fruitfulness to rise up in them. Fruitfulness of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Fruitfulness of salvation of friends and family. But Father, also I thank you for the power of prayer. And I thank you for Toya, with a woman with confidence and boldness to pray the kingdom down. I thank you for Alicia Sharp, and a woman bold and confident and courageous to go against the grain, to be faithful and obedient to what you've called her to do. 
And Father, I thank you for the power of prayer in this room right now. Father, we lift up the names of people that are far away from God or people needing an awakening, people needing their hearts restored or renewed, people needing the brokenness healed. Father, we call down heaven. Holy Spirit, we pray for spiritual encounters and visions and divine revelation. We pray right now for dreams that awaken them into their sleep. Father, we pray right now for encounters with people who are missionaries and ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven. And Father, above all things, I pray right now for boldness to rise up in your saints and for the Holy Spirit to be carried in vessels that are pure and holy and unblemished. That's why we thank you with every eye, every eye closed, every head bowed. If you're in this room, you say, you know what, today's my day. Maybe you were sitting down and now you're standing up. Or maybe you say, you know, I, I want to say yes to Jesus. That Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus is the Savior. He is the Messiah. He is the Redeemer. He's my Redeemer, my Deliverer, my Savior, my Lord, my King, my hope, my truth, my love, my Father. And I want to take that step today. I'm not going to have you come forward. If that's you, I just want you to slip your hand up real high right now. If that's you. Thank you. Anybody else? Keep waiting. Thank you. You can put your hands down. I'm going to pray. If I can have the altar team come down front, we're going to, I'm going to pray and we're going to dismiss. If you raise your hand, I just want you to do me a huge favor. I just want you to come and let one of the people down front know, hey, today was my day. It's just saying love on you and give you a hug and point you to the direction to get some resources out in the lobby. We want to walk with you, not just talk about it. We want to walk with you. We want to be that family that you had. Father, we thank you for this day. Father, I thank you for this amazing church with amazing people, with amazing stories. I thank you for amazing boldness, amazing love, amazing grace. And Father, I pray as your people leave today, they leave confident in the power of their own story. They leave confident in the power of sowing seeds of destiny in the gospel. I pray they leave knowing the power of prayer. And so, Father, we thank you for the newness of life in Jesus. We thank you for salvation. We thank you for redemption. We thank you for transformation. And Father, above all things, we thank you for you. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen.